Well, welcome back to our study of Esther. Uh, today we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And the title of this sermon is Identification and Propitiation. Identification and Propitiation. Um, as we dive in, I'm particularly grateful this morning to Dr. David Strain for his insights on the structure of this chapter. Uh, seeing the two themes of identification and propitiation in Esther 7 was a huge eye-opener for me this week as I studied. And so, what do I mean by that? Uh, identification and propitiation. Stay tuned. Well, let's begin by reading God's inerrant and infallible word. Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And I'm actually going to start by reading the last verse of chapter 6. So starting in chapter 6, verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the palace where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. So let's take just a, a quick minute to remember where we are in this story. Haman, the Agagite, the foe of Mordecai, has just experienced the absolute worst day of his life. He had to parade Mordecai, his worst enemy, through the streets, proclaiming him to be the one whom the king delights to honor. 
completely humiliated, he goes home and mourns. His wife and his friends tell him, you're done, man. You've, you've opposed the seed of the Jews. Good luck. Right then, in verse 14, which we just read, Haman is swept up and brought to the palace. My, how things have changed. In chapter 2, Esther was the one being swept up and brought to the palace. Now, it's Haman. The tables have turned. All because of a night of lost sleep by the king and the proceeding coincidences. Haman knows that he's going down at this point. He just doesn't realize how far. But he doesn't repent, does he? He doesn't throw himself at the mercy of Israel's God. He heads to the palace for dinner. And at this point, neither Esther nor Mordecai know the bullet that they've just dodged, do they? Sure, they they know that Mordecai was honored through the streets, but they don't know what Haman intended to do to Mordecai that very morning unless they somehow connected the building of the gallows with Mordecai's fate. The plan that they had prayed about in chapter 4 and initiated in chapter 5 was moving forward in chapter 7. Esther was ready for her second feast with the king. He had already committed to answer her favorably two different times. So showing up to this feast was a third committal to whatever she asked. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now, If you're Haman at this point, you might think, hey, things are looking up. (laughs) Yesterday was horrible, but I'm here, eating and drinking with the king and queen again. This isn't so bad. And if you're the king at this point, there's only one thing on your mind. What in the world is Esther's question? She risked her life to ask this question. I've been waiting for two whole days. What is her question? At this point, everything was a go. Esther steps up to the plate, and it's time for her to swing for the fences. No more patient strategy. It's time to ask. So look what she says. Verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. We notice this in chapter 5. But Esther is the epitome of lady wisdom from Proverbs chapter 8. 
She's as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. The way she even frames her question here is brilliant. First, she began again, as she did in chapter 5, by praising the king, showing him deference, the same thing she did the day before. If I have found favor in your sight, which she had, if it pleased the king, she isn't coming in there with demands. She openly acknowledges his authority. Then she uses the king's own formula to answer him. Notice the king, in verse 2, asks her her wish and her request. She repeats the same words back to him, but makes them one and the same. And Here's what I want us to see. This is key. Notice how fully she identifies with God's people here. She calls them my people. She says, we have been sold. Our affliction. There's no distance between her and God's people here. She's not saying, king, please spare me and please spare those people over there, the Jewish people. No, it's full on. If they perish, I perish. I'm in the same boat. She fully identifies with God's people. Third, she uses the exact language of the edict that Haman had passed, but in the passive voice, so as not to quickly accuse the king himself. And even with the exact language of the edict of destroyed and killed and annihilated, Notice that the king is still completely aloof to what she's talking about. But it's probably at this point that Haman's wetting himself. He's spilling his wine all over his new robe because he knows exactly what she's talking about, even though she hasn't revealed it yet. I want us to understand this. Sin will not remain hidden forever. Just 24 hours before this moment in our text, Haman probably thought that he was in complete control as he rejected God's authority and opposed God's seed. He thought he could get away with it. But sin will find you out. Look at what Proverbs chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says. Proverbs 5, 22 and 23. It says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 20, 28 says it even more graphically. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? It's saying, if you play with sin, you're going to get burned. It'll ensnare you and hang you. Sin always promises freedom and delivers death. The same is true for us today. If we have some hidden sin that we think we're going to get away with, Think again. 
God will graciously expose our sin. And if that's you today, I encourage you, no, I implore you to confess your sin and to repent. Lean wholly and completely into Christ and the forgiveness that only he can give. God will graciously and lovingly expose our sin. Continuing on in Esther's wise request, the fourth thing she does, look at how Esther finishes here. Again, with deference to the king. He says, she says to him, if we had only been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have bothered you. Ironically, this is ex- the exact position that Esther, and to some extent the Jews, had been in for years. Esther became a slave to the king the moment she entered the harem. She's saying, if I and my people were merely sold into slavery, you wouldn't have heard a peep out of me. But this is worse. This is way worse than that. We're going to be wiped out completely. You see what Esther's doing here? She paints a, a clear moral picture, but she leaves enough vagueness so that the king won't immediately implicate himself. This is the same tactic that Nathan the prophet used with David that we read about earlier in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan, the prophet, tells the story of the lonely lamb being taken for slaughter. King David takes the bait, not realizing that in doing so, he was implicating himself. That's what Esther has effectively done here. She's fanned the king's anger into flame. He's primed to take action before she even reveals the culprit. He's furious at this point. And look at this response. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? The Hebrew here, you can even kind of hear it in the English, but the Hebrew here is rhythmic. It's meant to sound like machine gun fire. Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? trap has been sprung. As Esther's wisdom and patience has paid off, the king's wrath is ready to be released. Esther just needs to point it in the right direction. And so she does. Verse 6. Again, a staccato pattern in the Hebrew. And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. This is raw emotion. One commentator tries to capture the machine gun sound by translating it. A man hateful and hostile. This wicked Haman. Boom, boom, boom. Shots fired. Esther has just done to the Agagite what King Saul should have done many, many, many years ago at God's command, all the way back in 1 Samuel 15. Now, before we move on to the rest of the narrative, I want to stop here and point out a couple of truths. 
First, I want us to see the contrast between Esther and the king. Esther, beginning in chapter 4 and up to this dramatic moment, she knows the right thing to do, doesn't she? And she does it. She fasts, she prays, and then she steadfastly acts. The king, on the other hand, every single time in this book, doesn't know what to do and is easily manipulated by others. You might say that he's tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind. How different is King Ahasuerus from God? Friends, God always does what is right without having to be manipulated because he's righteous. He can't do anything other than righteousness. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. And we don't have to trick him into being these things. He is these things. And he has been these things from before time began. He's a sovereign who can be trusted. He's a sovereign who can be approached. And he's a sovereign who can be praised. As a side note, how do we make sure that we aren't tossed to and fro like Ahasuerus? How do we make sure that the prevailing cultural narratives don't capture us and persuade our minds? Even closer to home, how do we make sure that even evangelical fads don't sweep us away? Here's how scripture answers that question. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he, meaning God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How do we not get swept up and thrown to and fro? We grow in Christian maturity. We grow into Christ. We get equipped as saints in the local church. We root ourselves in God's word. We speak truth and love to one another. We receive truth and love spoken to us. Don't be an Ahasuerus tossed to and fro. I hope we've seen in the book of Esther that that's a horrible way to live. Second truth that I believe we're meant to see loud and clear in this first section of chapter 7 is this. Esther is yet again a type of Christ. Her life is meant to point forward to what Christ will be like. She is yet again a type of Christ. What does she do here? She fully identified with God's people. 
thus placing herself under the sentence of death. Do you see that? The law of the king declared their destruction. She sided with them at the threat of her life. And this was the only way that she could secure their deliverance. Do you see it? Jesus Christ came to this earth and became flesh. He fully identified with God's people by becoming one of us, fully human. He placed himself under the curse of the law for us. He identified with sinners, even though he never sinned himself. This was the only way that he could secure our deliverance. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Esther stands and intercedes on her people's behalf. And Jesus does the same. He stands before the throne making his case for us because he died for us. In light of that truth, Ian Deguid rightly says, the basis for our appearing before the Father is not, quote, if I have found favor in your sight, but rather if Christ has found favor in your sight. Our destiny is bound up in Christ's if we are Christians. And so we sing songs like, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Jesus has fully identified with his people. He's interceded for us. And he's secured our deliverance. But how did he do that? If it's true that that we're all sinners, and we are, if that's true, how is our deliverance secured? Keep that question in mind as we continue to read the next section of Esther 7. How is our deliverance secured? Look with me at verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman staged to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The imagery here is stunning. Throughout the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy, but it's also a symbol of judgment. Take, for example, Psalm 75, verse 8. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Wine is a symbol of judgment. This is why Jesus says what he says to his disciples in Matthew 20, verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? In other words, he's saying, You have no idea what you're asking, disciples. I'm going to drink the full cup of God's wrath in judgment. I'm going to die. Many times in scripture, wine symbolizes wrath and judgment. Here in Esther, the king again 
is drinking wine and arises in his wrath. And what does he do? He takes a walk outside into the garden. Why does he do this? Well, the text simply doesn't tell us. It's possible that he just goes outside to blow off some steam. I mean, think about it. He's just learned that the one closest to him, his second in command, has betrayed him. Never in a million years would he have assumed that Esther would point at Haman in that moment. The king is upset. It's possible that he's just going outside to blow off steam. It's possible that in that moment he's made the connection that he, as the king, as well as Haman, is implicated here. So maybe he's out there thinking through what to do so as not to lose face in his kingdom. His reputation is on the line here. We simply don't know why he went outside. But what we do know is this. While he's out there, Haman stays behind to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Now, you should be aware of Persian custom and law here. Karen Jobes writes this. Harem protocol dictated that no one but the king could be left alone with a woman of the harem. Haman should have left Esther's presence when the king retreated to the garden. But where could he have gone? His choice was either to follow the king, who had bolted in anger from his presence, or to flee the room, suggesting guilt and inviting pursuit. Haman is trapped. Even in the presence of others, check this out, even in the presence of others, a man was not to approach a woman of the king's harem within seven steps. You see what's happening here? The king is outside. Haman stays. He's well within seven steps of the queen. And it appears he's left alone with her. How could the king save his wife, Esther, and have Haman killed, all the while saving face, distancing himself from Haman and the edict, which he approved of, by the way? How could he kill Haman without having to reference the edict at all? Verse 8, And the king returned, from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. The king's dilemma was solved. He just so happens to walk back in the palace, to see Haman falling on the couch where Esther was. I'd also like to point out another reversal here. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai and the Jewish people. Why? Because Mordecai refused to fall down before him. Now here, Haman is falling down before the Jewish queen. A fulfillment of Haman's wife's prophecy that morning. Back to our scene. While Haman was violating Persian law in being where he shouldn't have been, 
There's no indication that he was actually trying to violate the queen here. But for the king's purposes, it sure looked bad. He was able to immediately spin it and call for Haman's execution. Conveniently enough, the king had his guys always at his side, ready to execute. So they throw a bag over Haman's head. Verses 9 and 10. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Hmm, moreover, that the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Can you imagine Haman at this moment? He's got a bag over his head. Harbona just has a light bulb go on above his head. Say, didn't, didn't Haman just have gallows built? It's shiny and brand new, never been used before. I'll bet we could use it. Haman probably trying to kick him, telling him to shut it. Come on, man. But Harbona continues. The gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, who saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Once again, the king's receiving information from someone else. He thinks it's a good idea, and he says, hang him on that. So they use the gallows that Haman built to kill Mordecai, or to kill Mordecai with. They, they use that same gallows to kill him. Wow. There's so much to draw out here. If you're like me, you're almost cheering on, on the inside at this point. Yes! Haman got what he deserved. Justice. And in a very real sense, that's true. Haman did get justice. In fact, look at what the Jewish historian Josephus has to say here. Josephus says, And from hence I cannot withhold to admire God, and to learn hence his wisdom and justice, not only in punishing the wickedness of Haman, but in so disposing it, that he should undergo the very same punishment which he had contrived for another, as also because thereby he teaches others this lesson, that what mischiefs any one prepares against another, he without knowing of it first contrives it against himself. In other words, he's saying, look at God's wisdom and justice here. Haman got exactly what he deserved. Here's the deal. In many ways, we're meant to read the book of Esther and realize that we all have a little bit, or a lot of bit, of Haman in us. We may not build 75-foot gallows in front of our houses to kill someone. I hope not. And we may not plan for the genocide of a whole people group. But we're more like him than we may care to admit. Remember Haman's idol? He cares about being seen to be significant. He's prideful, and he loves to toot his own horn. 
He sees himself as the star of the show. In many ways, we're like Haman, seeking honor for ourselves instead of honor for God. Like Haman, we've all sinned against the king. And I want to help us understand something by way of analogy here. Let's say that, that I borrowed your car for some reason. And while I was driving it, I got upset at someone. And I, I pushed the accelerator to the floor and drove your car into a pole. I bring it back to you and I say, I'm so sorry. I told your car. Now, in that moment, you may say to me, Drew, I forgive you. That would be insanely gracious. But we'd still have a problem. The cost of the car. You might say, Drew, don't, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And you'd either pay for it out of your own pocket, or you'd pay for it by no longer driving the car. So that's one option, that you bear the cost of my sin. Or I could say, no, 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 no. I'm going to pay for it. And I bear the cost of my sin. Either way, someone has to bear the cost of my sin. The cost doesn't just magically go away. What I want us to see here in Esther 7 is that Haman bore the cost of his own sin and wrath was satisfied. And that would be the just thing for God to do with every single one of us. To make us bear the cost of our own sin. Because God is infinite and eternal, each and every one of us deserves death, just like Haman. That would actually be just on God's part to, to throw a bag over our heads and sentence us to death on a wooden beam. But instead... God sent his own son to die in our place, to be cursed on a wooden beam, to take the penalty that we deserve, and to bear the cost of our sin. Do you see the parallels here? Haman ended up dying by the same instrument that he thought would bring him power. At the cross of Christ, Satan thought that he had won, right? But that same instrument was ultimately Satan's downfall. It's the instrument that ultimately crushed his head. Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection was and is the ultimate way that Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled. It's the way that, that Jesus triumphed over sin and death and Satan. It's the greatest reversal in human history. And when Christ died on the tree, the king's wrath abated. This is what theologians mean when they use the word propitiation. We've read that word many times this morning in the scripture readings. Propitiation means the satisfaction of wrath by the means of sacrifice. I'll read that again. Propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath by means of sacrifice. Remember my question from earlier? 
Jesus secured our deliverance. But how did he do it? Propitiation. Like we've sung so many times here. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Or how about this one? Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Do you guys see why singing doctrinal songs is so important? You guys know these truths already because you've sung them. They're they're in your heads. They're in your hearts. Propitiation. God's wrath being satisfied by Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. Christians, we should be jumping out of our chairs because of this truth. I don't know why, but this week I saw a clip of Oprah giving away cars to her audience members. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. They're going nuts in the audience. Why? Because that's pretty good news. Christians, this is far better news than that. Because the full amount of God's wrath was poured out on Christ, there's none left for you. Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Ian DeGuid again notes, he says, if our debt has been paid in full, now we are free to go. What is more, we are free to come into the king's presence as a dearly beloved son or a precious daughter, welcomed for Christ's sake. No one one and nothing can separate us from the love of this king. Romans 8. He won't love us today and leave us to hang tomorrow, no matter what we do. Why not? It is because his love for us rests in his character, not ours. Praise God. Praise God for that truth. What a great news that is. In Esther... Chapter 7, two of the greatest truths are at the center of our Christian worldview. Number one, Jesus fully identified with sinners, you and me, to intercede on our behalf. Second, Jesus died as our substitute to propitiate for our sins. He satisfied God's just wrath so that we can go free and be delivered from the death sentence that we deserve. That, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray.